Let's go in our Bibles to the Gospel of John this morning. We're in John chapter 4, verses 43 through 46. We've been moving through a series in the Gospel of John, and this morning we come to a story that I believe is relatively less known, and yet is a powerful, powerful message for us. You'll be able to follow along either in the Bibles that are under the chairs in front of you or the screen behind me. We believe the Word of God is effective, able to convert and change, and we pray that's exactly what would happen in our hearts this morning. John chapter 4, beginning is verse 43, hear the Word of God. After two days, he, that is Jesus, departed for Galilee. For Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. So he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And at Capernaum there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. Jesus said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The official said to him, sir, come down before my child dies. And Jesus said to him, go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. And as he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better, and they said to him, Yesterday at the seventh hour the fever left him. The father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, Your son will live. And he himself believed, and all his household. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. This is the word of God. Many years ago, I was a chaplain for a police department in a small community, and one of the officers came to me on one afternoon, and he said, you are the only religious man I know. Would you be willing to marry me and my fiance? My practice then as now was to agree to do so as long as we had premarital counseling. And since they had no idea what that involved, they willingly agreed, and for five weeks, We went through the story of the Bible, creation, fall, redemption, consummation, notice that's only four, where I explained to them what the Bible said about what's wrong, how we find redemption in Jesus Christ, and the hope of the future. My agreement with them was not that they believed everything I said. In fact, they openly said they didn't. But they were at least willing to consider it And I think that was honestly true. You notice those were four lessons, but I was fearful about the fifth. You know what the fifth was? You know, don't you? Roles in marriage. Ephesians chapter 5. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. And wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. I saved it for number five, not because it naturally belonged there, but again, as I say, I was afraid of what they would say. I remember when they came into the office to talk about the fifth lesson. I began with the future husband. That seemed like the natural place to begin when you're afraid. And I said, what did you think of the lesson? He said, I did read it. I considered it. And it is backwards. It was offensive. We will not be doing it this way 
at all. Now, to appreciate what's about to happen, you must remember, or perhaps I have to tell you, that the first time the fiancé came to my office, she was wearing a t-shirt that I'll not describe to you because it had a very strong sexual innuendo on it. She had a baseball cap that was curled, as is somewhat common in rural areas of the U.S., all the way around, pulled very far over her eyes. She was very uncomfortable. She had been through every other lesson. And now as I turned to her and I asked her, what did you think? I thought, this will not be good. What did you think about the lesson that you read? She gave me a very long pause. She said, I have been married two times before. In my first marriage, my husband abused me, and I left. In the second marriage, my husband eventually left me. In this third marriage, I've come every week hoping that something you would say would help my marriage stick, this marriage, long term. She said, as much as I don't want to say it, this is what I think. That if God gave me a husband who would love me like that, I think I'd actually be willing to follow him. I don't remember what happened after that. I do remember going home and saying to my wife something along the lines, I had a really remarkable day. It's amazing, the truth of God's word. I've told that story a few other times as well, and every time I've told it, what's come to mind is this. Oh, the beauty of the law of God, that he describes a Christian marriage, and even this woman and this man, I think they're still married, even she could recognize the beauty of what God describes as a biblical marriage because the Bible says so. Isn't that amazing? She wanted something better, and the Bible presented to her something better. That's the way I've told the story. And it's true. The Bible's description of marriage is beautiful and good, and I commend it to you this morning. But I also want to tell you this, that my understanding of what happened in that office many years ago is really inadequate. Or maybe I need to be a little more confident and say I was wrong about something really basic and important about what happened there. And that's why I've introduced this passage with this story. Because this passage helps us understand something very basic that we tend to miss over and over and over again. Here's the thing that we miss. I'm going to say it to you. You're going to hear it, and then I want you to think about it as I explain it. What this passage tells us is that true faith happens. True faith, true belief in Jesus Christ happens when what we seek, what we want, is eclipsed by what Jesus gives. Now you're going to think to yourself, I don't understand what that means. That's fine. That's part of the reason we're here, isn't it? So I can explain that to you. How does true faith begin? 
when what we seek is eclipsed by what Jesus gives. That's the story. I'm going to start by explaining to you what they wanted from verses 43 through 47. If you've been following along in our sermons on the Gospel of John, you'll notice that the previous part of chapter 4 is the famous story of the woman at the well. Many people know that story. We spent a couple of weeks thinking about it. And now John pivots this unfolding presentation of the Gospel of John, all of which you should remember is really meant to answer this question, why should I believe that Jesus Christ himself is the hope of the world? Why should I believe that? That's the burden of the Gospel of John. That's really what Jesus meant to convince the woman at the well. And now he pivots to this story about an official, one that you probably can't remember very well, because he wants to convince us of another reason to believe that you should put your confidence in Jesus. And Jesus moves from Canaan in Galilee to Samaria, and now he is coming back to Galilee again and this small town of Cana. Remember the first miracle Jesus did in verse 46, it says, was in this small town turning water into wine. So you can imagine when we read this story, it says the Galileans welcomed Jesus back into their town because... Not only had they seen that first miracle of water into wine, or at least they'd heard about it, but now we read that the Galileans welcomed Jesus into their city because it says, look at your text, they had seen all that he had done in Jerusalem. Now, what is that that Jesus did in Jerusalem? Glad you asked. If you go back to chapter 2, you'll find out that John records Jesus doing something remarkable in Jerusalem, something that doesn't seem so remarkable to us. We've perhaps heard it many times, or maybe this is your first time, but regardless, it was truly one of the most remarkable things Jesus did. Way more impressive, as hard as it may seem for us to believe, than turning water into wine. In John chapter 2, it says that Jesus... Why he was at the feast in Jerusalem, went into the temple, and when he was there, he drove out the money changers and the animals from the court of the temple. They were using the court of the temple, the place that the ordinary person would come to bring their sacrifices, and there were people in that court using the place of the worship of God to make money. And it wasn't just making money. He was charging, most likely, way more than they should have. These were people turning worship into a cash opportunity. And it was harming the worship of God, especially those who were perhaps least able to provide for them financially, for themselves financially. And in that story, the Bible says the Jews demanded to know from Jesus and what sign he might give to prove the authority that he could do such a thing. And what authority, Jesus, do you drive out these money changers from the temple? And his answer, and this is the reason these people in Galilee would have been so impressed. It's the answer he gives. Do you remember the answer he gives? It's this. Jesus says, destroy this temple and in three days I will rebuild it. The Jews respond by saying, 
Are you crazy, Jesus? It's it's taken many, many decades to build this temple, and you're going to rebuild it in three days? And it says, John records, but Jesus was referring to his own body and his resurrection. Now, maybe that seems strange, but let me tell you the reason why Jesus does that. Jesus is telling us that he is the authority to govern the place where God dwells because he is the dwelling of God with us. It is not just meeting with God in the temple. No, Jesus is saying, God is here. For all these generations, you've come to the temple to wonder, how can we worship God and please him through these sacrifices? Jesus is claiming in the cleansing of the temple that Jesus, God himself, has arrived. Can you imagine the news that would have been? No wonder the Galileans had heard what had happened in Jerusalem. It wasn't just miracles that Jesus performed. It was the audacious claim that God himself had arrived. The temple anticipation was fulfilled. Oh, my word. Can you imagine what that would have been for the people of Israel? Literally the thing they had looked forward to for all of their nation's existence, Jesus was claiming, had now arrived. This is the biggest thing. So what would you do if after Jesus being in Jerusalem making that great claim, he now comes into your village? What would you do? If after these miracles and signs that Jesus performed in Judea, this Jesus now came to your small town, back to Cana, what would you do? Well, the Bible tells us. You would naturally ask yourself the question, well, what can Jesus do for me now? Sort of a take on the advertising slogan, what can Brown do for you? (laughs) They're asking, what can Jesus do for me? Jesus can turn water into wine. He claims that he's God himself. I've got my problems too. What can Jesus do for me? That's certainly the question that is going to be asked by this government official in the following verses. But I want you to see that really is at the heart of what these people were wondering more generally in Galilee. Jesus himself says it when he says a prophet has no honor in his home country. What he's saying is, a prophet has no recognition. The word there is specifically about recognition in his home country. And in fact, the word that John uses to describe the welcome that the Galileans give to Jesus is not the warm welcome that you had when your grandparents or when your grandchildren came over during the Christmas season. What happened when they showed up at your house? You didn't stand by the window and say, huh, honey, somebody's here. Well, that's kind of interesting. No, if you're like us, you ran out to the driveway. Can we help you carry anything? Can I give you a hug? Welcome. Let's explain to you what's been going on in life. This is a great reunion. Welcome to our home. No, what we find here is more of the welcome that you give when you get your change back. Does anybody get change back at the grocery store anymore? Used to be when people got change back and you said, thank you, and the cashier said, welcome. That's a very mild welcome. Because they were not welcoming Jesus himself. Instead, the question they were asking themselves is, what can Jesus do for me? 
And the desire of many is made explicit then in the request this official makes to Jesus. He's called an official, most likely serving Herod Antipas, the Jewish sort of king who existed in Israel at this time. And because he was attached to Herod Antipas, he had a standing most people didn't have. And he probably felt more confident than the average person to come to Jesus and say, my son is dying, would you come? In fact, there's a sense of even forcefulness in what the official says, come down to Capernaum and heal my son. I tell my soldiers, I tell my officials, I tell the underlings in my office, Do it and they do it. I'm coming to you asking the same. Again, let me simply note that in chapter 2, verse 23, the Bible had indicated Jesus had performed other signs at Jerusalem. They're not recorded for us in the Scriptures. Some of them may very well have been healings. And this official now wants the same for his son. Why can't Jesus do that for our house? If you want me to explain to you sort of verbally what this man was thinking, it goes as simple as this. Jesus, I'm see, I see that you can do it. I've seen you do it in many, many places to many other people. I've heard the claim that you've made. Jesus, now heal my son. Do it for me. Now let's just step back for a moment and let me ask you, as someone who's reading this text with me, is this a bad request? Is it a bad request? This man had a son who was dying. He was very close to death, the Bible records. Is that a bad request? If you say, no, I'm with you, it's not a bad request. The Bible commends that request in other places. And James says, if anyone's sick, call for the elders of the church that they may pray over him and the man might be healed. It's not a bad request to ask that God would heal someone close to us. I'm sure most of us, if not all of us, I'm sure all of us, if we're believers, have prayed similar things. Have you not? We prayed, in fact, this morning for members of our church who, is, who are sick. We pray that sincerely. When it's someone close to you, pray it even more fervently. Imagine you have a child who is in the hospital, very, very sick, I've been in that spot, and I've prayed like I've never prayed before. Heal, protect, care. Maybe you have a spouse, maybe you have a friend over the last couple of years who first contracted COVID, then it went to the lungs, and pretty soon that friend is in the hospital. Did you not pray fervently that the Lord would heal that person? Or maybe... You're in a marriage that struggles all the time. In fact, you barely managed to make it to church this morning with a smile on your face because you always got these little, these little differences of opinion, little squabbles that pop up all the time. Is it embarrassing that I'm talking about that this morning? Maybe that feels embarrassing, but you feel that in your heart. And maybe you've prayed even last night over and over and over again, Father, heal my marriage. That's not a bad prayer. In fact, it's commended to you in the Scriptures. All of us have asked God for things like this. 
And it's not wrong to ask the Lord to heal someone who's close to us, to answer our prayer. That's not wrong at all. But if you would just walk one step further with me, let me ask you this. Let's say that God gives you everything that you're asking for. He heals your child, your spouse, your friend. Your marriage is restored. You are healthy. Let's even go beyond. He blesses you with so much money, you don't have to worry about it. To even be more imaginative, your children grow up and they are thrilled to call you every day just to see how mom and dad are. Let's imagine that all of your wildest dreams come true, all the things that you've prayed for. You have a wonderful marriage, a wonderful life, Here's a question I have for you. Would that be enough? Is that enough? Or to use the example of the fiancé at the beginning of this sermon, would a loving husband, if our third marriage was a loving husband who loved her as Christ loves the church, and she would have a great marriage. Would that be enough? There are many, many people who think to themselves, maybe you're among them. Yeah, it would be. If all of these things were the way I wanted them, it would be enough. Life would be right and I would be happy. So let me press you just a little further, if I can ask you your permission to probe into your heart just a little further. If all those things were right, how long would they be enough? When we pick up the story again in verse 48, Jesus is talking to the Father. I've explained to you what the Father was seeking, what He wanted. Let me show you now what Jesus gave. In verse 48, the Father is speaking with Jesus. And Jesus says to the Father, Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Now you might miss what Jesus is saying. At least there's a potential, so let me explain. Jesus is criticizing a certain kind of faith. It is a belief in Jesus based on what Jesus is able to do. Now I've said it, haven't I? It is a faith based on what we see done and not in the one who is doing it. And Jesus is saying to the Father, you will not believe unless you see signs and wonders. That's not faith. Getting what you're asking for, even the healing of your son, is not faith. In fact, if that's all it ever is, he says, you will never believe it is not possible. Because what Jesus is asking the man to do, and what I'm asking you to do this morning, is not to believe based on what all the things that Jesus can do for you. It is actually a faith in Jesus Christ himself. It's a faith in Jesus. 
Healing is not enough. Prospering is not enough. Flourishing is not enough. What we're seeking is not enough. What we need is faith in Jesus Christ. If I've not trampled too much in your heart this morning, let me drive this home a little bit more. You will notice Jesus is not addressing just the official. Twice in this verse, he says you. He's referring to the plural you. He means to address all those in Cana and Capernaum. He means to address you as well. He wants to tell you this morning that to be a follower of Jesus Christ is not simply to receive from his hand all that you expect. It is to put your confidence, to rest, to rely to believe in Him. Notice how the Father responds in verse 49. Look there in your Bibles, verse 49. What the man says is, Sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus challenges the man to believe in Him. The man responds by saying, Sir, then come down before my child dies. You may not see this, but the Sir or Lord there literally demonstrates a toning down of the man's attitude toward Jesus. There's a humility in the word, Lord or Sir. Even though he's used to commanding other people in his work, here he humbles himself before Jesus. And what this reads like is more like a prayer rather than a command. Sir, would you please come down and heal my son? I believe that you can. I need you. I don't want you to miss that. Can you pause and see what happened there? The man came looking for the healing of his son. He wants it to happen just like the people of Cana want another sign. Just do it for us already. But the interaction with Jesus leads to a subtle but critical shift in his heart from what he is seeking to what Jesus gives. What is Jesus really giving here? Is it healing of a son? Yes, in a moment he will, will, will heal his son. But what I'm really encouraging you to think is Jesus is giving more than healing to his son. Jesus is giving himself to this man. Jesus says in another place, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Jesus is not just saying, You'll have rest. Jesus says, I will give it to you. And that is always the nature of genuine faith. That's when faith begins. We turn away from what we're asking God to do for us to make our life better. So that my life works better. When we turn away from what we want, and those wants are eclipsed by what Jesus himself is able to give. Which is healing. It is a restoration to your marriage. It is protection and care. But fundamental to all of that is not what he gives. It is that he gives himself. He gives himself to you. Now you might wonder, why is that so important? Let me explain. When Jesus gives himself to you, he gives you everything that you need. Not just the healing of a son for this official, not just a marriage that works well now. He gives you contentment and peace in whatever your circumstance is, both for this life and the next. He says from the biggest thing that any of us face, that is, we are rebels against a holy God. Jesus provides for that. 
And then Jesus goes beyond simple. You're okay now. To walking with us. To being our source of comfort. To being our genuine place of peace. To being the one who gives himself to you. I think sometimes we mistake what Christianity really is. In fact, it's sold to us. It's a way for you to be better or your life to be better. Many Christians across the world today, Zach Francois, our dear brother in Haiti, would not confess that when you become a Christian, all of a sudden your life is immediately better. Living up, living hold up in a airplane hangar so that you are not assaulted or killed by your fellow countrymen is not an easy life. But what Christians across the world, and our brother in Haiti this morning can confess, is that Jesus himself is enough. And if Jesus is enough, then even if the official son had died, it would not be the end of the story. Even if your marriage never gets better, it can still be okay. Even if the thing that you ask for and pray for all of your life never turns out in the way that you desire, it's still okay. Notice in this story, Jesus does heal this man's son. Praise the Lord. We're very thankful for that. Jesus confirms to this man that his faith in Jesus himself is a faith that ought to be there. And he confirms that through the sign of the healing of his son to the point that when his servants come back and say, what, uh, what hour did my son feel better? It was the seventh hour. And the man said, just like Jesus said, Jesus is able to do all of these things, praise the Lord. He can heal, restore. He can tear down. He can provide justice. He can do all of those things. But true faith begins... When what we seek for from the Lord, from Jesus himself, the things we want him to do for us is eclipsed by what Jesus himself provides. I wish I could go back to that office many years ago. I don't know if I would have had the courage to do it. Frankly, by the time she came out with that, I didn't know what to think. But I wish I could go back to this office and say to that dear lady, I'm so thankful you've come to that conclusion, but here's the thing. It's not just a better marriage that you seek. I'm offering to you Jesus himself. Maybe you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus. And maybe you can look at all the places in your life where you think if only these things were different, my life would be so much better. Let me tell you as someone who's imagined that, someone who's prayed for that, someone who has sometimes received that. All those things cannot substitute for Jesus himself. I would love it if you would leave this time listening to my voice, seriously considering, is there anyone beside Jesus? One more time, and then I'm going to pray. True faith begins. When what we desire from Jesus is eclipsed by what he provides, let's pray. Our Father, we pray 
for all those things that we have already asked you. We do not pray insincerely. We do pray for healing and restoration. We pray for your help. We pray for your wisdom. But we do not do them apart from Jesus. We do not look to Jesus as just the answer man, someone who can finally get us what we want. We look to him as our hope. We look to him as our hope. We look to him as the savior of our souls, as the one who loves us like no one else, the one who is with us like no one else can be, the one who has promised to endure with us. Jesus said to his disciples before he ascended, and I am with you always, even to the end of this age. To the end of the world, I'm with you. And then even beyond, he said to his disciples in John, I'm going there to prepare a place for you that where I am, there you may be also. Jesus intends to be with us now, tomorrow, and into eternity. And that is where our hope is found. I do pray, Lord, for each person who's hearing this. I pray this also for my own heart, that we would not skip by this easily, but instead this truth would be driven deep into the recesses of our heart and become the foundation upon which we live with joy before your face. It is in Jesus we pray. Amen.